This is the Shift Podcast. And Martin Strong in for Shane today on the Shift Daily Podcast. Is it easy being a Canadian NFL player? Chase Claypool, a Canadian wide receiver for the Chicago Bears, tells us about his journey to the NFL and his tradition for the Super Bowl. Uh, And what is the most important thing you need to learn a language? Linguist Matthew Yulden speaks 25 languages, and he's going to tell us why he thinks learning a language can be easy. Yulden also gives us some strategies you can use to learn any language. And are you okay with Facebook Marketplace? How about home-cooked meals? All of that on the Shift Daily Podcast. This is the Shift Podcast. Imagine what it would be like uh, to be an NFL player, an actual NFL player, and you had to watch the game as a spectator. Chase Claypool, wide receiver with the Chicago Bears. He was drafted by Pittsburgh, played a few seasons with the Steelers. He was born and raised in Abbotsford, British Columbia, and Chase Claypool is with us right now. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate the time. I guess Super Bowl Sunday is is kind of bittersweet to be a pro football player. It's a huge event for the sport, and it's important, and it's fun, but I'm sure you wish you were there. Yeah, it is definitely bittersweet. You know, you're around all the events, you see all the celebrations, and you, you realize the magnitude of the game while you're kind of in the city. And uh, But at the same time, you're not playing in the game. So it is bittersweet, but it is, um, it is cool to support friends that are, that are a part of that game. And you've got time. I, I think I think the trajectory for the Bears is on the way up, and uh, we'll see. We'll see how it goes. It's going to be a very exciting next few years for the Bears, right? And and you're from Abbotsford in British Columbia. Is is that where you're spending the off season? Yeah. So uh, yeah, born and raised there, and I go back after every season, but I only go back for for about four to six weeks um, usually, just because. I train in the States, so I'll end up doing my training out that way. Uh, so, yeah, I'm about done my time in Canada. I only spent a few weeks there this year, but I'll go back and forth whenever I get the chance. Yeah, and and what's it like being a, a player from Canada uh, and growing up in Canada compared to growing up in the States? Because the football culture, I would imagine, is quite a bit different. Um, I guess there's some advantages and some disadvantage. Would you, would you say it's more advantageous to grow up in Canada or disadvantageous? I would say disadvantageous. Um, I think one, um, you know, obviously the competition, uh, there is good competition in Canada for sure. It's just you have to play at that highest tier. And if you're not, then, you know, it's kind of tough to show what you can do against good competition. Um, and then, you know, we grow up playing Canadian football rules, right? So we got three downs, you get points for missed field goals, punts, all that, um, <laughs> either the field's longer and yeah, so it's a different game, but, uh, so we try to play catch up when we hit high school, uh, in my province, when I hit high school, I can start playing American football rules. So we kind of had to do that a little bit and play catch up, especially going into college. Is it something that ever comes up in the NFL? Do do people even care that you're Canadian? Um, no, I don't think people use it like to try and use it against me, which I think has probably changed recently. I think people in the past maybe would look at Canada um, or players from Canada and, you know, maybe throw a little jab in there, but I haven't got too much of that. <laughs> We're talking to Chase Claypool, wide receiver with the Chicago Bears and a, a native of Abbotsford, BC. And, uh, you know, it's Super Bowl Sunday. So so how do you generally uh, approach a Super Bowl? Uh, how do you do you have friends over or do you like to kind of sort of watch it carefully and strategically by yourself? Um. Yeah, no, I definitely like to get get a group of friends together and watch the game. I think. It's cool because you have different friends cheering for different teams. So you get some, you get a little bit of trash talk in there. So it's exciting <laughs> to yeah, have friends over and then get a good little meal for them prepared. Yeah. So what's the favorite food? So the must-haves, you know, you got your chips, you got your little sides, you got your little, your little vegetable tray. Um, but I think the most important thing um, 
is wings. I think you got to go with chicken wings. And I think if you don't, you're in the wrong there. Right. Yeah. I think chicken wings are, uh, I think are pretty crucial. I guess that's where the Frank's red hot comes in. Um, so do you find that uh, a Super Bowl party in the U.S. is different than one in Canada? Are, are we a little bit more subdued here in Canada? You know what? No, I think, I think Canada does do good Super Bowl parties. I think you can find some pretty cool spots to go to, whether you're in public or people always. I know in Canada, I did a Super Bowl party every year. So we definitely celebrate it pretty good. It's, uh, yeah, it's not bad there. So what about rituals before watching a game and playing a game? Let's talk about your rituals when you play football. Are you sort of a superstitious person? Do you have rituals that you do? Yeah, I mean, my rituals have kind of changed throughout the years. It's just adjusted as as the years have gone on and I've simplified things. Um, my pregame ritual, if I'm playing, I just uh, I'll always do a lap around the field. Um, I'll always, you know, take a knee in the end zone, say a little message, um, a little prayer. And, uh, that's kind of as far as it goes. I always do my eye black sideways. So yeah, that's, that's in terms of playing in terms of watching the game, you know, we kind of touched on it, but having the friends over and just preparing a real good meal for them. I like catering people. So like you said, we got to have the chicken wings and that's where the Frank's red hot comes in. Try to get that little flavor and heat and uh make my friends happy yeah i guess rituals are funny they they sort of evolve because like when you're playing if you do something strange like i I can't think of anything but something that happened and then you go out and you have a great game and then you probably Mm -hmm. feel like i have to do that every time before before the next game exactly exactly and then you stop doing something and then things don't go well and then you have to do it again so i try to keep it pretty consistent um but it's tough it is tough Mm-hmm. So you were traded to the Chicago Bears. It was this past November, right? That is right. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, the team had, we'll just call it a challenging season, uh, but there are some bright spots. So uh, how are you feeling about uh, how the Bears are going to approach the next season and what's going to happen? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I think a lot of people look look at our record and, and write us off pretty quickly. But I think if you watch a lot of the games, you know, I would say we probably lost when I was there seven out of the nine, maybe six out of the nine games when we were up at one point or we had a chance to win at the end of the game, you know? So you win those seven games and you're in the playoffs, right? And and that's things that we can fix. And I think we know that. And I think that comes with the experience of our team. So I think next year is going to be a really big step forward for us. And I think we're going to u- utilize, you know, the cap space that we have and the the draft picks that we have and, and do something special because that's a huge thing that i think a lot of sports fans myself included when i watch hockey especially i i don't really understand how the caps work but uh, it's a crucial part of the game that the team has a little bit of room to spend some money and get the good players right mm-hmm. yeah it's very important and uh you know, because that that can really one player even can can change the outlook of your season. So I think grabbing the right five to six guys can really change a team. Yeah, and and the NFL is going through some changes as well. The organization of the whole league and everything. It was uh, it was a lot of controversy the past few years, but they seem to be uh, really trying to to make things right. And, uh, you know, as a player, are you feeling feeling good about the way the league is conducting its business? Yeah. You know, I think especially as the years go on, social media becomes a big part of that. And uh, players and, and fans and or anyone who supports the players kind of have been able to spread their message throughout the social media. And, and I think it's applied a little bit of pressure to um, maybe be just more compensated for the risk that, you know, uh, all of us take when we step on the field. So I think the NFL is taking good steps in doing that. And hopefully we just keep progressing with that. Yeah. Because, uh, you guys really put yourself out there just like, uh, national hockey league players, you guys really, uh, you, you really put your bodies at risk. So you, you mentioned social media. Do you like to get onto social media? Do you have fun with Twitter and stuff? Yeah, I used to, I used to, but, uh, uh, I still do. Yeah. Yeah. But do you have to be careful what you say? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I really can't say anything anymore. I just, you know, I can't really tell the truth or nothing. So people, people like that. 
So I just, I just say, say what I got to say for the day. Do you feel like you can trash talk on Twitter? But I think like the upside versus downside pros cons of that, like people just take it too serious. You just can't really have fun on there. I feel like. Yeah, I guess that's true. So, so probably uh, uh, a lot of uh, little kids might be listening. They might hear you because they're big fans of yours, especially in Canada who are playing football. I mean, what's your, what's your message for, for a, a kid playing football in Canada, which may feel a million miles away from the NFL? What's your, what's your message to those kids? Yeah, I think, um, you know, whatever your goals may be, um, in your sports career, hold your main goal high. Um, but don't forget along the way, achieve, um, small goals that, that can take you, you know, uh, step-by-step closer, closer, closer to that main goal and just have fun with it during the time. Um, because once you accomplish all those little goals, uh, the reward, uh, will be worth it, whether you get that main goal or not. You heard it from the the man who made it to the show, Chase Claypool, wide receiver with the Chicago Bears and a native of Abbotsford, BC. And I think I speak for all of Canada where we would say you're a great uh, a spokesperson for this country and the great game of football in the United States. So um, thank you for taking the time. Thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate the time. Chase Claypool on the shift. Pretty cool. Uh, this is Martin Strong. I'm in for Shane, and uh, we were talking about watching uh, the game as a spectator, and someone texted in, I think Hamlin from the Buffalo Bills was a spectator as well, uh, referring to DeMar Hamlin, who had the cardiac arrest, I guess about a month ago, and he was uh, there, and uh, that was pretty good. Uh, and the Super Bowl, I mean, it's it's fun for a lot of reasons, not just the game, but also, uh, you know, the ads and also the halftime show. And I think the halftime show uh, this year, I, I enjoyed it. I thought it was uh, kind of spectacular, really. And it was also uh, uh, kind of a comeback in a – I don't know if comeback is the right word for Rihanna, but I don't think she's had a, a record out in a long time. And uh, I thought it was pretty good, though some people didn't think so. Uh, Donald J. Trump, uh, he tweeted out, Donald Trump tweeted, EPIC FAIL, all caps. Rihanna gave, without question, the worst single halftime show in Super Bowl history. This after insulting far more than half of our nation, which is already in serious decline, with her foul and insulting language. Unquote. That's from uh, Donald Trump. But apparently, uh, apparently the stars, they get paid scale to do the halftime show. They just get paid scale. They don't get a huge, big payout, but uh, it's worth it because everyone's talking about Rihanna. But the spots, the commercials, the, the people in radio and, and broadcasting, they call them spots, the spots. And the, the commercials are always kind of the stars. And uh, do you think... Uh, Ryan O'Donnell is with us. Uh, do you think, Ryan, there was one commercial that was the star of this of this Super Bowl? Yes, I do. I do have it. It is. Uh, we're going to play it very shortly. Uh, I will not reveal which one it is until okay. we play it. I will say that it involves a very famous TV show and two actors that are almost exclusively known for their work on that show. Very big return. Right. Uh, I thought, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, and we'll, we'll hear a little taste of that. And I thought that the, uh, the one that kind of amused me was the one for Pepsi or something. I can't remember what it was. It was, uh, a, it was a soft drink. Yeah. And yeah. it was Steve Martin and, um, I'm blanking on his name, Zoolander. Ben Stiller. Ben Stiller. Yeah. And the first spot I saw, they were together, and it was pretty funny. <laughs> it was like, I'm, TV, I'm, I'm movie actor Ben Stiller, and I'm better movie actor Steve Martin, and then they get in a fight. <laughs> and then, but I think that the one, I don't think we have that one, a clip, but it, uh, I, the thing I loved about the next one was just Ben Stiller, and at the very end, for just a split second, they showed him as Zoolander pouring the Pepsi all over him in a, you know, in a Zoolander male model kind of way. 
I thought that was pretty good. And it was a very well made ad, very well made, good looking. For, yeah, it was it was a great standard Super Bowl caliber commercial. Yeah, and and when you think of Super Bowl commercials through the years, I mean, what do you feel like is a, is a great Super Bowl commercial? Do you do you remember it? Because because I remember some like oh, yeah. uh, like there was of course the 1984 Apple computer mm -hmm. commercial yep. and Iconic. yeah and it's like 1984 and uh then they smash it's all gray and it's all 1984 and they smash smash the screen and they say apple is here to tell you why 1984 won't be like 1984 and apparently that some people call that the greatest commercial ever made i would say it's up there 100 percent. yeah yeah and uh, snickers has always been good uh, here, here's an, an absolute classic Snickers commercial, and it, uh, what I love about it, it features the late, great Betty White. Mike, come on! Mike, what is your deal, oh, man? come on, man, you've been riding me all day. I, you're playing like Betty White out there. That's not what your girlfriend said. Oh, baby! Whoa, 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 whoa. Use Snickers. Better? Better. Hey! Oh. That hurt. You're not you when you're hungry. Snickers satisfies. Yeah, they got a lot of mileage out of that. That they whole did. they're not you, and it basically you're hungry, and then you become usually like your Abe Vagoda or something, some old actor, and then you have a bite of a Snickers and you come back. Which I kind of love. Uh, but this year, they had some fantastic commercials. Um, and, and this one was interesting. The Crown Royal commercial featuring Dave Grohl. And uh, this ad is literally just a giant thank you letter to Canada. Today, let's thank Canada. Thank you for legends of music and heroes of comedy. Thank you, Canada, for peanut butter, the paint roller, the replay, and the battery. The egg carton, the ironing board, electric wheelchair, and thank you for this. Thank you for hockey, basketball, and thank you for football. What? No way. Yeah. Look it up. Thank you, Canada. Yeah, that's Dave Grohl. And uh, do we have time for one more? Can we play one more? Let's. I'll let you oh, set yeah. this one up. This is the, because you you said that you thought this was the the big winner. I think it was the winner. Production value, incredibly simple, but it's, uh, I never thought I'd say this. Thanks to a new potato chip, we uh, we have seen the return of Jesse Pinkman and Walter White and, you know, Breaking Bad as a chip commercial. I can't imagine how much this cost. Yeah. Uh, but it truly was a spectacular ad that, it was weird. These actors actually put in quite a substantial performance for a weird popcorn chip ad. And uh, yeah, it was like watching a bizarre, weird, uh, like blooper reel from a Breaking Bad episode. Yeah. But, and uh, yeah, was, Tuco was yeah. in it too. And Tuco. Yeah. The, the absolute crazy drug dealer. I mean, they're all kind of crazy drug dealers, yeah. but uh, it was, as you'll hear right now, a, a very good ad. No, these are the bomb. And they're air popped, not fried. Hot corners. You're an artist. Actually, Jesse, it's just basic ingredients. No, we don't eat our own supply. Mr. White! <laughs> Jesse. Everyone's gonna want to taste. And I know just the guy to talk to. What are these? We call them pop corners. Say their name. <laughs> Pop corners. Tight, tight, tight. Yeah. How much of this stuff do you have? We've got six signature flavors, y'all. Seven. You make seven. Seven. Seven works. Yeah. Pop corners break into something good. We're gonna eat a lot of snacks together. <laughs> Yeah, when I saw that, everyone I was sitting with said, how much did that cost? Just to, Millions. Just to Millions. get those guys. And then $7 million just for the 30 seconds alone. This is the Shift Podcast. Learning a new language, very intimidating thing. 
for most people. Uh, even here in Canada, where we're supposed to know two, uh, and even when someone can speak more than two languages, that's always very impressive. But how about 25? That's how many languages my guest right now can speak fluently. Matthew Yulden is a language consultant, a linguist, and a lecturer. And he believes learning a new language shouldn't be impossible, and it can even be fun. Matthew is with us now. Thanks for being here. You're very welcome. Thank you. Uh, bienvenue, as you'd say, on the other side of Canada. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I guess you've got all that covered. Um, now, you're originally from Manchester, England, but you're you're talking to us right now from the Basque country. Correct. Yes, indeed. Uh, that's where I'm at the moment. And uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's, uh, I'd say, not as cold as where you guys are, but it's uh, it feels like that, let's say, at the moment. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So, so you're there to teach English. You have a kind of an interesting business going. Yes, I do. So uh, it's not just me. It's also someone that looks very like me, i.e. my twin brother. <laughs> and um, what we have been doing for the last 10 years or so is uh, not only teaching English, um, we teach several languages a day, up to 10 languages a day, because um, ever since the uh, grand old age of eight, we decided to learn other not just one language, but other languages. And um, we ever since have continued doing this. And there are 7,000 languages still spoken um, across the globe today. And uh, with a bit of luck, um, I don't think we'll get all 7,000, 7, but maybe 700, that would be a, a nice uh, a nice challenge. Holy cow. So you're saying that by the time you uh, shuffle off this mortal coil, you're going to be able to speak 700 different languages. Well, we're linguists or language scientists, so we might need the assistance of other kind of scientists <laughs> to help us get to that. But uh, we're at about 25 at the moment that we've learned so far, and uh, it would be great to uh, at least double, if not triple that, over the next uh, few years or so. But yeah, we're optimistic, but again, we might need a, a bit of assistance there. Well, that's very impressive, 25 languages. And uh, I have to say, there there seems to me to be nothing more intimidating than learning a new language and maybe learning the violin is intimidating as well but as someone who is an expert at it uh would you say it's easier to learn a language than people think or is it uh, really hard absolutely and i think the issue here is is that we're led to believe um and it's not just us anglos english speakers i think um, there are others across the world that we're led to believe from a very early age that it's borderline impossible. And <laughs> um, I like to think of it as, um, you know, being told um, that language learning is like rocket science. And I can only say that it's exactly the opposite. It's actually one of the um, easiest, and I'm not being arrogant by saying that, it's there are very um, effective ways of going about learning and teaching another language um, um, to make it easy, to make it um, not only easy, but also appealing, fun. And the thing is that in theory, uh, the two of us could be, you know, having this conversation in French or in Arabic or in Cree or in any other language that we'd like. It's simply us, you know, deciding to go out there and say, hey, I want to learn this language because... And I think um, what's really helpful um, for when it comes to learning a language is it's got to be something personal. It's got to be, why do I want to learn this language? What does this language give me? And this is really what helps keep us motivated when we decide to actually go about learning the language and, and I say to master it. So, yeah. And is there one sort of initial tip you give everybody, everybody who sits down and says, I want you to teach me this language. What's the very first thing you do? Absolutely. So the first thing I would say is, is that it's super important to actually do something in the language every single day. Now, a lot of people think that that means 10 hours of straight learning every single day. You can do that if you want. We do this. We have like these um, um, yeah, intensive courses where people come to us to learn for 10, 12 hours a day um, for over a week. Now, I know that a lot of people feel completely intimidated by that and, and understandably. Um, but um, what is really important for us, from my brother and myself, is that if you decided to, to commit and to, to, to learn a new language, um, then it really is about learning every single day. But for about two, we say 30 minutes a day, minimum of active learning, that's where you're um, 
you're doing a course in the language um, where you're actively taking the language in, you're absorbing it. But we also refer to what we call as passive learning. And that's where you can, for example, be listening to this radio show if you're listening to if you're learning English, where you're doing stuff that you would normally do in your other language or your first language, but you've decided to pretend that you're, say, in France at the moment or in Montreal. And therefore, you're going to go about doing what you would do normally, but as much as you can in French or in the language that you've decided to learn. Right. Because I've heard people say things like uh, they'll be talking about the TV show Friends, for example, and they'll say, yeah. I love that show because that was the show that taught me English. Yeah, right. absolutely. Of, of course. And you start to identify with that and then you start to think, well, hey, that's actually really cool. I find it really interesting. It's really funny. And then you can adapt what they say in the show. Um, even at an early stage, you don't have to be fluent to start watching shows in the language, to start listening to music. Um, it's actually, you know, if we think about how we picked up English as, 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 as little ones, um, none of us came out into this world being able to speak a language, any language fluently, simply impossible. Um, but for us, it actually is, as kids, it took us much, much longer to, to become fluent in, say, what we call now our mother tongue. Um, but as an adult, or as someone that's already learned a language, um, so someone, you know, um, a teenager um, that has decided to learn a language or a, an adult later on in life, whether it's 20, 40 or 80 years old, um, you can mix and match. You can take these shows and make them part of your life, even though you're not fluent at that stage. It's really about making it relevant to you and, and adapting it to your everyday life. Yeah. And I heard someone literally say friends. So I guess there's a million other bits of content that you could watch, but it's funny that it's friends. Cause I, yeah. cause I guess when the, the way you get the English that really colors it because, you know, if you're watching friends, I guess your, your sense of sarcasm and you know what I mean? And yeah. sort of comic timing is sort of heightened. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, um, um, whether it's friends or whether it's say, um, watching other kinds of shows in English or in any other language. The great thing nowadays is um, that's a reality. That's completely possible. All you need is your phone or an, an internet connection or, you know, good um, coverage when you're elsewhere, whether it's, you know, um, you don't even have to be at home anymore. You could be out on the, on the train or you could be out in the forest or as long as you've got a, a phone and a connection with you, then um, you can, you can watch anything or listen to anything nowadays and that compared to say when we started out learning languages which was in the mid 90s and um the internet was just coming about but there was nothing like apps there was nothing like um tablets and phones and we had the great idea of buying a um phrase book and a mini dictionary and uh, when we started to learn spanish for a holiday an up upcoming holiday to spain back then at the age of eight um, for us, it was um, what can we do? How can we learn this language so that we can actually, when we're there as eight-year-olds, play with other kids on the beach? But we thought they're going to be speaking Spanish, so we need to be able to 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 understand what they're saying. So we had to do the work here. We had to, you know, we had to learn Spanish. And then, um, yeah, we went about it in a completely childish, uh, childlike, <laughs> in a very naive way back then. <laughs> yeah. so. It kind of reminds me when you mentioned the guidebook, it reminds me of that old Monty Python sketch with John yeah. Cleese and he's a, uh, he's from somewhere else. And he says, my hovercraft is full of eels. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly. Um, are, so what about the apps? Where do you, how do you feel about the apps and are there ones that you really recommend? Um, so I think, um, the brilliant thing now about apps is, is whether it's, you know, an app to watch something, whether it's an app to listen to music, whether it's an app to, you know, play games and stuff. That's the thing that it doesn't have to be language based. It can be simply something in the language that you've decided to learn. So the great thing nowadays is really that there is so many apps out there and so many things that you can be doing on your phone um, to simply practice using the language. And it's actually um, to the point where 
you know, how can I spend my day and how do I limit what I'm actually doing? Because what we do is we encourage um, people that learn with us to go about their everyday lives using um, as many different techniques as possible. Um, so it doesn't become, you know, monotonous to really, you know, um, whether it's listening to music in the morning while you're having your breakfast to then in the evening um, being a bit more adventurous and saying, hey, I'm going to actually try and attempt to cook something based on a recipe that I found on this app because I'm learning Italian and I wanna, you know, I wanna put that into practice. And, um, you know, it's uh, really about having fun with it, running away with it and making it your own. Yeah, you gotta get those measurements right. Indeed, and if you don't, <laughs> hey, maybe just by chance, you've ended up with the next best Italian recipe. <laughs> the world just doesn't know it yet. A very positive way of looking at it. We're talking to Matthew Yulden. He's a language consultant, a linguist, and a lecturer, and uh, speaks 25 languages. And that's just the beginning. Uh, he plans to learn a new language every year, which is very, very impressive. Um, and here in Canada, especially English-speaking Canada, there's uh, a thing called uh, uh, French immersion for kids in school, where they send their kids, especially in, in if you live in Canada, in, which is a bilingual country, but you live in a place where there's not as much French spoken as some other places. So you put your kids in French immersion. And I think in, in the olden days, um, people felt like it, it hampered learning to have two languages on the go at the same time for a little kid. But... Um, it seems like the studies show they, though they might struggle in subjects at first, uh, as the years go on, they actually do better. So uh, I suppose you're a proponent of uh, French immersion or, or another uh, language immersion. Absolutely. And I would say the, the more the, the merrier, the more the better, really, especially at a younger age where children really, I mean, it doesn't mean that as adults, we can't, we can't, we, we absolutely can. Um, and this is something that we show every single day through our work, but, um, and through the people that come to us and, you know, um, um, learn languages also in, 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 in a record amount of time. But um, as children, the, 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 the really great thing about it as a child is that um, when you're in the process of learning, whether it's, you know, we say things like your mother tongue and your father tongue, you might have um, two languages spoken at home. You might have more than two. You might have, and, um, you know, whether it's through um, the parents or also through the grandparents, if they're also actively involved. So a child from a very early age can be um, um, surrounded and immersed in up to maybe, you know, let's say even four or five languages. And especially if they, they then go on to um, school and where another language is used and maybe a, a different community language. So to be honest, um, anything that is, yeah, French immersion or any kind of immersion is really really great for for children and and this idea that it's it, it's more difficult for them absolutely not um what might happen is that every now and then um a child might take a slightly um might slightly bit longer to 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 come uh, to, to 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 say a word maybe but um this is something that we all do when we're learning our own language or languages so it's it's really um, incredibly beneficial for for children to learn um, as many languages as possible from a from a young age. Yeah, I, I have a friend whose parents speak Welsh, and he's grown up now, and he uh, kind of wishes that his parents taught him to speak Welsh. But he's now sure. con he's now convinced that they didn't uh, teach him Welsh, so they had their own secret code. Yeah, <laughs> that is also something that you know we um, you hear every now and then. And um, on the one hand, you think, okay, great, but it I completely sympathize with with the ones that. Are left out of the secret language because and especially in the case of languages such as welsh where um you know languages that are um, um minority or minoritized languages that um where there is a real fear that certain languages at some point um could uh, unfortunately um die out and that there is um, a real uh, urgency to 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 pass the language down onto um further generations so um yeah um, I also know this as well, and we also, uh, my brother and I, regularly receive emails from um, from um, uh, parents or um, um, budding parents, thinking, um, you know, I speak language, this language, my partner speaks this language. What would you recommend? And we always say that um, to use um, both languages um, 
if um, the parents speak two different languages um, and um, you can also have a family language, uh, which, you know, is a, a, a third language. Um, and uh, yeah, the, the, the possibilities are, are limitless. Yeah, that's that's very cool. And the uh, kind of theme that's popped up on this uh, show uh, this morning and tonight um, is is a romantic uh, movies because it's Valentine's day on Tuesday. And we were talking about romantic movies and what about um, couples? And I guess it happens at work too. It's not necessarily a romantic thing, but when a couple gets together and whatever language, they, both of their languages, their first languages are different. And uh, that can be a challenge, right? Of course. Um, absolutely. And you know, whether it's, um, you know, perhaps may saying, um, um, especially maybe if you're not using the the same language, or if one of the the the, uh, the ones in the couple is um, is using um, the first language of the other, and um, maybe uh, yeah, it depends on of course the the level of the language that they both have. But um, if it's um, yeah, communicating say through a, a second or um second language which isn't yours then obviously there is this um potential to maybe say something wrong but this is <laughs> we all <laughs> you know we um this is something that you always um this always comes up as a topic regarding language learning and the fear of making mistakes and the only thing i can say is hey uh, there's nothing wrong in making a mistake unless it's something you know maybe you didn't want to say to the in-laws that uh, yeah. didn't sound so great but even <laughs> then you know it's a learning curve you'll come out of it better so yeah i have a ton of uh, relatives in finland and i talk to them on facebook all the time and occasionally i'll read their posts that they used google translate on yeah. they just yeah. popped in a big paragraph and those google translate posts can be quite hilarious absolutely <laughs> and that brings us to a question about artificial intelligence i mean how is that changing uh the way we deal with language because do you do you think there'll be one day when when there'll be something that just automatically translates for you instantly and there'll be no need to learn new languages which is i'm something i'm sure would does wouldn't sit well with you well, it's you're not the first person to ask me this, and I get this I get asked this quite regularly, and I always say again, we're referring to in-laws, and there are devices nowadays already that uh, allow us to, um, uh, to a certain extent, and I'm sure that over the next um, uh, years, if not decade, that uh, there will be advances made in this as well, where you will possibly be able to put something in your ear and say something and the other person that you're speaking to will be able to, without speaking the same language, understand what you're saying. But do you really want to communicate with your in-laws like that? I mean, it doesn't, does that give such a, it doesn't give such a, a great impression huh? and it'd be much better to be able to impress them by actually saying that in their language. And not just that, I mean, talking about Valentine's Day, you know, these three special words, that funnily enough in other languages aren't three, but this I love you. I mean, do you really want to say that through an app? Do you really want to say that through AI? I mean, it just doesn't really have the same sound at all. It doesn't, you know, it's... So I, I can understand on one hand that people say, hey, maybe um, also with, you know, translation and interpreting that and there have been so many advances that nowadays, you know, when it comes to translation, that a lot of it is uh, already um, translated to a certain extent. Um, you know, subtitles can be already automatically translated. But at the same time, there will always be a need for human um, uh, interference, human um, humans um, perfecting this. And the same goes with, with language learning that it, regardless of whether it's in 550 or 500 years time, I'm convinced that we will always need, we will have to learn other languages. Yeah. And language is much more than just words. It's, it's a lot of uh, the intangibles, I guess. Right. Absolutely. And even as two English speakers, I'm from Manchester. And if I were to say something in my form of English, which, you know, for listeners in Canada, they might have never heard of it. <laughs> Is this still English? <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's that something that a machine's never, never going to pick up on these nuances or, you know, or maybe they'd have to create a robot from Manchester. I don't know. But, um, <laughs> it's, uh, 
<laughs> I like that idea. Well, I have to say, it's been a pleasure talking to you because you're so positive about it. You you seem to have uh, obviously a love of learning new languages, but uh, you're kind of inspiring me to kind of think, yeah, maybe I need to brush up on my French or something. And it, it's I'm, you have a great attitude. I'm very happy to hear that. And if there's anything I can help you out with that, please let me know, especially, you know, French or whether it's something you say in Finnish before. Uh, we haven't done Finnish yet, so maybe we could uh, learn Finnish in uh, five to seven days, and then we can help you out with that. <laughs> I <laughs> so. love that. Matthew Yulden is a language consultant, linguist, and lecturer. Uh, he knows 25 languages, <laughs> which is really impressive. And, uh, you know, I, I was going to say kind of annoying, but no, no, it's very impressive. <laughs> and I, I uh, what's the next language you're going to learn? It's a good question. Actually, we haven't got one. Uh, we usually have like a long list, but in theory, um, yeah, um, we always think every year, oh, we'll do this and then something prop, uh, pops up and then we end up doing something else. But if any of your listeners have a recommendation or yourself, please let us know. We'd be delighted to hear. Well, thanks for talking to us, Matthew. You're very welcome. Thank you. This is The Shift Podcast. Are you okay with Facebook Marketplace? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, okay. Okay. I have never had, I'm, I'm, I'm lucky. I've never had a bad deal on Facebook Marketplace. Right. You know, if I'm going to make a transaction on there and it ends up happening, it's usually been really easy. I'll never forget one time when I was moving into my first place, I was selling so much of my like nerdy you know, little trinkets that I didn't need anymore. And this guy came up uh, to the to the door to buy this collector's edition for a video game. And he's like, uh, I'm so glad you don't know my wife because she can never know that I spent money on this. And then he like <laughs> grabbed it, gave me the money and ran away. It was hilarious. So uh, Facebook Marketplace in that context, great. The problem is there's so much spam, scams, and ghosters, you know, where, hey, is this still available? Never respond. Hey, right. is it still available? Never respond. Or you see a great deal and then they're like, you know, hey, could you please send me a uh, Western Union bank transfer for this? And you're like, oh, never mind. Nope, nope, nope. This is a scam. So I think, you know, it's a good way to make some money, sell some stuff, but it's not, it's not perfect. Mm -hmm. I've never sold anything, but I have bought a couple of things, a couple of big things. One of them was a, was a vintage stereo receiver, Ooh. a Marantz. And off there. Wow. yeah, and uh, it was just trouble free. It was it was kind of just before COVID. So it was before uh, everyone went crazy for stereo equipment. But um, it was really easy. And it was such a nice, pleasant transaction. It kind of made me think that uh, Facebook Marketplace is the greatest thing. That's well, that's that's I'm that's a big purchase too. like that's a that's awesome that that worked out. Yeah, and it, it's funny. I, I've never had a problem with Craigslist or or any of these things with buying something or or even selling something. I've never had a problem. It's always gone really smoothly, and I've always liked the people that I uh, bought from, and I feel like I'm, you know, participating in the community when I do that. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah, because you can buy pretty much anything now on Facebook Marketplace. You know, like a a couch for example, uh, and a Vancouver man uh, did just that. His routine furniture sale turned into kind of a feline mystery uh, when he discovered, after he uh, sold the couch, that his beloved cat was missing. Uh, after a neighborhood search, the cat came back after quite the couch surfing adventure. The tale begins with the sale of this couch on February 5th. And when the guys came over to, um, to buy the couch, uh, Marley came into the room and crawled underneath the couch, uh, which we didn't notice. The couch was loaded up and driven from Vancouver to Richmond with Marley, the three-year-old calico, tucked inside. It didn't take long for Matt Lamabi to realize his feline friend was missing. So I tore my room apart and um, uh, tried to look for her, couldn't find her. He called the people who bought his couch, but they hadn't seen her. So Lumabi put up missing posters, and his neighbors helped look for Marley for three long days. Sleepless nights, you know, like on all these forums, trying to figure out what, um, 
what to do. Just when he thought she was a goner, the couch buyers contacted Lumabi, saying they sold the sofa to someone else, who then discovered the couch came with four extra legs. The couch has like this like um, pouch, I guess, where they put the legs and stuff like that for storage. And um, Marley, I guess, found her way underneath it and um, burrowed, in her, burrowed in there for like three days. That's uh, Global's Travis Prasad uh, reporting on that. And uh, yeah, talk about couch surfing. <laughs> uh, uh, Lumabi said his three-year-old cat is happy to be home now and has been more cuddly than normal. Hmm, that's why. That's because I, 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 I guess cats are, yeah, they, they would, I, cats are so aloof that they surprise you though. I have a, yeah, they do. I've ha I have a cat now. Millhouse, and I've never had a cat in my entire life. And uh, I, yeah, Millhouse is getting to be about six years old, and, and we have a good relationship now. I kind nice. yeah, of, yeah, very cuddly. Uh, and you know, three days without food and water for a cat, I would be very nervous if my cat, if Millhouse went three days without food and water. But you know what? Not a big deal for cats, it's not. I have a crazy story, actually. My uh, ex-girlfriend, she had a cat named, I think it was Alice, and she went missing for an entire month. Holy cow. Presumed dead, right? They found her in the next house over. What happened was, at some point, Alice ran into the garage of this neighbor's house. The garage door was closed, and the guy who lived in that house works in the oil patch. So he was gone for a month. Came back. Alice the cat was somehow, after a month trapped in a garage, still alive. Wow. I wonder cat what she man. did. Any idea what she ate? I think, well, they think it, she must have had a, a mouse or two. And I think there was, oh, this is so long ago. There was some water. I don't remember where it was, but there was just enough. And they were very, like, the timing, she probably would not have made it much longer. So, Yeah. That's amazing. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Man, cats, man. Yeah. Not my thing, but respect. You know? respect. <laughs> respect. Respect, cats. And yeah, because uh, a veterinarian, uh, Dr. Adrian Walton, said uh, three days without food and water is fine for cats because they're, they're desert animals. <laughs> so are you okay with home-cooked meals? I, uh, I did not learn to appreciate the power of a home cooked meal till I left home. Not, I yes. did not. Yes. Like, you know, even it's something simple like mom's spaghetti because nobody will make spaghetti like how your mom makes spaghetti. Right. Yeah. And so I remember first time I went back to my mom's, uh, like not the very first visit, but you know, I went over for dinner and she made spaghetti. And you know, when I lived at home, that used to be like, Oh yeah, good spaghetti. I like spaghetti. And then when I was there and mom made it, I was like, this is the best plate of spaghetti I've had in my entire life. And that right there, that's the power of a home cooked meal. Oh yeah. We had kind of the reverse of that. A few years ago, oh. uh, my mother-in-law moved into our house in the basement and all of a sudden, it was like just pierogies. <laughs> all of a sudden, uh, she would let us know, I've made some pierogies if you want to have them. And if you've ever had pierogies made by uh, uh, an older lady of Ukrainian descent, you are enjoying something. It's really amazing. And, and uh, she even taught my son how to make the pierogies. So, uh, I mean, pierogies are incredible. Incredible. So good. I must so be hungry. Uh, but uh, would you eat a homemade meal made by a robot? Uh, I guess I'd try it, but I just don't. You know, I watched this uh, chef on YouTube uh, who's Italian, and he only speaks in Italian. And he, like, when he is making food, it's as if you can feel the passion and every like pinch of salt and all that. And I feel like that would make the food taste better. And a, you know, a robot making my food, I feel like it would be missing something. I feel like there's the secret ingredient, the human ingredient will be gone. Not to say that there's actual human stuff in the food. Just, I mean, you know what I mean? The passion. Yeah, absolutely. Talk to Vikram Vidge, the restaurateur, and he was on uh, Dragon's Den 
for a season or two. And uh, he's a restaurateur based in Vancouver. And he talks about his mother cooking Indian food and uh, how she uses the, 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 the spices like a painter uses paints, like a little shade here, a little shade here, a dollop here. And, and uh, to hear Vikram Vidj talk about his mother cooking, uh, you could never replace that with, with a robot. And, and I'm talking a, a meal fully cooked by a robot. Uh, the owners of Bots and, and Pots, <laughs> it's a, sea, a, a, a Sai Food Bistro in Zagreb. Uh, they claim it's the world's only restaurant where ready-to-eat meals in a pot are made by robotic cookers with no human involvement other than loading the devices with fresh ingredients. The challenge was really to make a finished dish from raw food in as few minutes as possible and to make it as tasty as possible. The process itself took a long time. A lot of money was invested. We are talking about more than a million euros. That's a lot of work, a lot of enthusiasm. The robotic chef is called Gamma Chef. The only time a human is involved in the cooking process is when it comes to loading the device with fresh ingredients. Our head chef in Split, in our showroom, practically teaches a robot how to cook a dish. Once he's been taught, the robot remembers it and then it can repeat it. It can repeat it a billion times. We now have some 70 dishes ready. Right now, each robot can make four meals in 15 minutes. So that reports from Reuters and it proves that it is possible. Yeah. Possible. Possible. Uh, mm. Yeah, it took seven years to turn that idea into reality and open the restaurant last year after uh, the partners invested over a million euros. That's a lot of money. Uh, That's a lot of money. Yeah, their current goal is to create a no waiter, no chef, no cash space where you order get and pay for food without human contact. I'm not sure how I feel now, about that. That feels very dystopian. You know, yeah. that just feels very lifeless. I'm trying to think there's this movie that's coming to mind oh, where I just feel like there's this image of someone just walking in and just like, you know, like a, a nozzle just squirting out a bunch of food on a tray and you leave and eat it. There's no life in it. There's no heart in it. It's just food. And I feel like you know, you'd be missing something there. And I get, you know, the fast food, just pump it out. And there's actually, I think in Phoenix, McDonald's just opened up a fully robotic staffed McDonald's as well. Uh, and even there, I feel like you got to have the cashiers or the people that have to, you know, deal with working at McDonald's, like my brother who worked at McDonald's for years and years. So I just feel like taking the human element out of cooking is just a dystopian future I, I don't really want to be a part of. Yeah, because I keep hearing about these grocery stores that are that are unmanned, to for lack of a better word. There's nobody in them, and you can, if you need to get groceries, you have a card, and the card gets you in the door. You pick out what you need, and then you leave, and then the it, it knows exactly what you took, and it charges you for it, and you never talk to a single person. It's like Weird. a dystopian movie. It is very dystopian. I, I feel like this is this is at the point where we have to go, do we really need this? Do we really need the robots to be doing this for us? I'm fine if they just clean up after us. I'd still like to make the food. Yeah, they can do the dirty jobs, not the really, the passionate ones. The, yeah, the passion. The, the passion. Thanks for listening to The Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca. 